2 Samuel chapter 18, picking up where, uh, where we left off. Uh, title of the message today is Good News, Bad News. Good news and bad news. And you guys, you all know the drill, right? You, you, you've heard a number of them, I'm sure. Hey, I got good news and I got bad news. Guy goes to the doctor, I got good news and I got bad news, right? Uh, <laughs> the good news is you only got three days to live. That's the good news. What's the bad news? Bad news is I should have told you three days ago, you know? Uh, hey, <laughs> guy goes to the doctor, says, hey, I got good news and I got bad news. And he's, he's like, oh my gosh, you know, so, uh, so give me the bad news. And the doctor says, well... Or, or rather, the guy says, um, yeah, give me the bad news. He says, the bad, the bad news is you have cancer. You only got, you only got six months to live. And, and he's like, oh, my gosh. Uh, that's, the, that's the bad news. What's the good news? He says, well, the good news is you've got Alzheimer's, so you won't remember it. The guy says, remember what? You know, so anyway, good news, bad news. We all know the drill. Today, what we're going to see in our text is that David is going to receive good news and bad news. And the big idea of our message today is going to be that the good news for mankind is the bad news. The good news for mankind is the bad news. And stay tuned and we'll find out exactly what that means. We're going to look at uh, three things as we start here. The message, the messenger, and the morning. If you take your notes, you can write down first thing, the message. 2 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 19. And we read, Then uh, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said... Let me run now and take the news to the king how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. If you were with us where we left off, basically Absalom uh, has uh, teamed up with Ahithophel. Absalom is David's son. Ahithophel is David's chief advisor. Absalom has been having an axe to grind with David for quite a while because, you know, he has seen his father uh, behave in a way that, well, he just coddled his kids. Uh, and uh, his son Amnon uh, raped uh, his daughter Tamar, uh, Absalom's sister. Uh, Absalom is, you know, incensed about it. He kills his brother because David doesn't do anything about it, basically. And, uh, and so all of this is going down, and Absalom not only has, you know, murdered Amnon, his half-brother, because of what he did, but now he has, you know, underhandedly uh, betrayed his father David. He's made a, a, an attempt to seize the throne. Uh, he assembled a bunch of people, won the hearts of the people to him, and, you know, perpetuated a coup, as it were. And David, rather than cause a lot of bloodshed there in Jerusalem, he, he just left. Uh, and, uh, and so as he left and just, you know, trusted his lot uh, to the Lord, Absalom wasn't content just to take the kingdom. Now he's going to go after his dad, and he's going to kill him. And so uh, he t- attempted to do that, and we left off with, uh, with him being killed, Absalom being killed uh, in the battle. And so this is what we're reading now. Uh, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, wants to go run and take the news to David, the good news. Now, you, you know, you'll recall in, when David left, he left some people behind uh, strategically. He left, um, the, uh, he left Zadok and Abathar, the priests, behind. 
And uh, he left with them their sons, Zadok's son Ahimaaz and Abathar's son Jonathan. He left them behind and they were going to be part of the spy network to keep David informed of what was going on. They couldn't send him an email, couldn't send him a text, uh, couldn't, you know, put something out on Twitter. They had to, you know, convey it with messengers and so they, uh, they did that. And Ahimaaz's job has been to convey these messages to David. So here now he's got the best possible message, good news to share with David. Hey, the Lord has delivered the kingdom. And because Ahimaaz is loyal to David, he's thrilled. He wants to be the one uh, to tell David. Again, that's the good news, but there's also bad news. Verse 20, And Joab said to him, to Ahimaaz, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day, but today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Now, Joab knows to bring bad news to David is hazardous to people's health. No doubt he remembers when the Amalekite went and brought David news that uh, King Saul had committed suicide on the battlefield. And, you know, the Amalekite went and told him about that and how Saul enlisted his help when he wasn't immediately dead and so on. And the Amalekite sort of helped him out, that assisted suicide kind of thing. And what did David do? He killed the Amalekite. And another time, you know, uh, in 2 Samuel 4, you know, a couple of guys went to, to, to um, David and they told him that they had killed Saul's son Ishbosheth, who, you know, was, you know, a threat potentially to David and to the throne. And what did David do with those guys? He killed them. And so Joab, he says to Ahimaaz here in our text, he's like, look, I'm not sending you. Well, that brings us to the messenger. You can jot that down. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 21, we continue. It says, Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. And so the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And so Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, this is, this is uh, Ahimaaz, whatever happens, please let me run. And so he said to him, run, fine, whatever, get going. And then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain, and he outran, outran the Cushite. And now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes, and looked, and there was a man running alone. And then the watchman cried out, and he told the king, And the king says, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. And then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper. And he said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. And so the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. Apparently his run was very distinctive. You know, some people have runs that are very distinctive. I don't know if he looked like a spaz when he ran or what, but anyway, they're like, oh, I can tell That's, that, that guy looks like Ahimaaz, uh, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man. And he comes with good news. Remember, David had left this guy to be one of the chief communicators, and so he's, you know, anxiously now expecting good news. And so Ahimaaz, verse 28, called out, and he said to the king, all is well. 
And then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king. And he said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. And the king said, is the young man Absalom safe? Remember when he sent everybody out, he told every, he divided all his forces amongst his three generals and he told every single one in the hearing of all the guys, hey, make sure when you go out, you don't hurt my son. Yeah, I know he's a treacherous, murdering, backstabbing guy who's caused a lot of heartache for us, but I don't want you to murder him. And so this is now David's first question to this guy. He's like, is the young man Absalom safe? And now Absal- or Amahaz, you know, he's in a place where it's like, you know, what's he going to do? He answers, uh, uh, when Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, uh, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and he stood still. And just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, what's he going to say? What's the deal with Absalom? That's the, that's the only question the king can ask. He says, is the young man Absalom safe? And so the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do you harm be like that young man. In other words, that dude is dead as a doornail, man. He is just, you know, he's, he's dead as a mackerel. He's there. Now, There's two messengers. One brings good news. The other one brings bad news. And so we see that the the one messenger, he's a Cushite. Who is this Cushite? It's a, you know, it it just tells us there as as he takes the the scene there, uh, Joab said to the Cushite. It's the first mention of him. Well, obviously what we know about him is that he's from Cush, which is in Africa, specifically Ethiopia area. So this is, this is that. We're not given his name. He's just known as the Cushite. So it's most likely that he's Joab's servant. Um, Some speculate that this is the guy who saw Absalom hanging in the tree and who went to Joab and said, I saw a guy hanging in the tree. And he's like, why didn't you kill him? You know, and he's like, I wouldn't do it. David said not to do it and all. Now, it's complete conjecture and speculation that he's Joab's servant and that he's the guy that saw uh, Absalom hanging in the tree. Some even speculate that he's one of the ten guys that went and uh, finished Absalom off with Joab when he went. But the one thing we do know, and this text makes clear, is that he's the one who's charged to convey the message of what he has seen. That's important. He's, he's called to convey the message of what he has seen. You and I... As believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to convey that which we have seen. In Jesus Christ, Paul said, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched and handled with, it, with our hands. This is, this, is, this is what we tell you about. And so he's charged to convey this message of what he's seen. Now the other message that we see here again, it's Ahimaz, the son of Zadok, the priest. And Ahimaaz, while he has zeal and he has part of the message, he has the good news. Hey, we won. The kingdom has been delivered. He doesn't have the complete message. Notice again what he says there at the second half of verse 29. He says, I saw a great tumult, but I 
do not know what it was about. And so compared to the Cushite, Ahmaz was a better runner, but he was a worse messenger. Why? Well, because he didn't have the full message to give. You know, a lot of times we'll have people that, that come to us and they have a lot of zeal. And, and they'll be like, oh, I, I, you know, I want to go out. I want to I plant a church. I want to be, you know, a pastor. I want to be a preacher. And, and, and we'll say to them, you got a lot of zeal. Great. Listen, you, you, need, you need to get equipped with a full message, man. You know, and, and so, you know, don't, you know, don't go out with your zeal and, and, and all until you're, you're ready and equipped with a full message uh, to give. And, you know, because a, a message can be delivered with great zeal, but listen, the messenger's first responsibility is to get the message straight. And, and listen, all Ahimaaz can focus on is the victory but simply, simply focusing on the victory ignores, listen, what the victory cost. He has a misdirected zeal. That's important to keep in mind. He has a misdirected zeal. Paul, writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, he said this. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. I like the way the New Living Translation puts that phrase when when Paul says they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. New Living Translation translates it this way. Paul says they have enthusiasm, but it's misdirected zeal. They have enthusiasm for God, but it's misdirected zeal. See, the Jews thought that they could be saved by their religion. They thought that they could be saved by keeping the law. And a lot of people feel that way in their religion. They relate to God in a way that, that is one with, with a lot of zeal, but it's, but it's misdirected zeal. They feel like, you know, gosh, if I help enough old ladies across the street, then, then I'm going to gain currency with God. If, if, if I'm, you know, really focused on, on just keeping God's word, living obediently to God's word, well, then, then, then I can attain a right standing with God. And, and, and I'll talk to, to people all the time, and I always bring it down to the litmus test question. How do you know you're going to heaven? That's the, that's the question. And, 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 and then it's a telling question. I ask it to you today. How do you know you're going to heaven? Because if your answer immediately goes to, well, you know, some sort of a works-based, oh, well, you know, I, I, I hope that, that I'm going to heaven because, you know, I do this or I do that. I keep the t- Ten Commandments or whatever. I always tell people who tell me that, you're a liar. You don't even know the Ten Commandments. Tell, what, you know, what's the Fifth Commandment? You know, uh, they can't, well, if you can't tell me what it is, how, how, you, how can you keep it? You know, and, and there are people who live this way. And, and, and here's the thing, and, and you can get an idea if this is part of the makeup of your mindset, is that when Satan tempts you to sin, and he's always right there and he tempts you to sin. And when you fall into sin, he becomes the one that condemns you. God convicts you of sin, but the enemy condemns you. And when he condemns you, he's like, oh, you, well, you can't go to God now. You, look at what you, you're just a mess. You can't, look, here's what you got to, if you want to go to God, you better clean up your act, man. You better, you better start. And what happens is, it will actually inhibit us from going to the Lord in prayer. 
He'll keep us separated from God because our mindset is, is well, if I'm going to go to God, I've got to clean this mess up. No. No. You go to God as quickly as you possibly can. If you fall into sin, you say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I did it again for crying out loud. God, forgive me. He's not waiting for you to clean things up. He's not, and, and I don't know, maybe that's a word for somebody today. That you're in a place to where you're thinking, you know, I'm on the outs with God, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that if, I, if I say enough prayers, or if I, if I go to church enough, or if I, you know, make enough atonement for my wrongs, that maybe I can get back in God, good, God's good graces. No, God, God wants to give you grace, and has given you grace, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And, and, and he, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all means all. It's all all means. And so, so this, is, this is the thing there that, that we, we need to understand. Listen, when Paul is talking to these Romans, he's saying, look, they, 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 the, about, about the, the Jewish people, he's like, man, I got this desire you know, for, for them to know God. Because they got a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They're trying to, to base all of their relationship on God, on their ability to keep the law, to keep the Ten Commandments, to keep all of the, the rules and regulations that they've instituted, and they hang everything on that. But what the Jews failed to realize is that the law was given to show them their need for a savior. Listen to what Paul said to the, to the Galatians. He said, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was our tutor. That word tutor, it, it, it's the word pedagogos. And, and, and I don't, don't ask me how to spell it. I can barely pronounce it. But, but, but a pedagogos was, was the tutor that would tutor young Jewish boys and, and all and, and, and help them in their studies. And so this tutor, most young Jewish boys really hated the pedagogos because they were the ones. I had a teacher, Mrs. Roberts, in third grade. And uh, she was uh, not very nice. And she used to... She, you know, people talk about, I went, it was a Catholic school. People talk about the Catholic school. No, she was no nun, but she was as brutal as any nun ever was. She would hit us with a ruler, hit us with a yardstick, hit us with whatever was available to her. She was just, she was horrible. And I think of her when I think of this word, pedagogos. And, and so Paul is saying, look, the law was our pedagogos. It was there to, to basically show us that you can't keep the law. The law was there to show you your need for a Savior. That's the whole reason God gives His perfect standard. This is the whole reason why Jesus told His disciples, unless you're perfect, you're not going to be able to get to heaven. They're like, who's perfect? Jesus is one who's perfect. The Savior. That's the whole idea here. And so... Ahimaaz, as he focuses on the victory, as he focuses on the good news, he's forgetting, hey, what it cost. Look, it, it, it cost something for the nation of Israel to be delivered. It cost something. Listen, that, that wayward child, that rebellious son, had to die. Listen, you are a sinner by nature and by choice. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. 
Absolutely. Someone's got to die. And that's, this is what the Jews miss. They're zealous for God, but it's based on incomplete information. Someone's got to die for their sins. That's Ahimez's problem all the, all the while here. He's got misdirected zeal. Hey, I got good news. The kingdom's been delivered. But he met, neglects the most important detail. The cost of victory, the death of the rebellious son. Now, ironically, the same can also be said of David. He also has a misdirected will. And here we see the third thing. We see the mourning. Let's take a look there. Pick it up in context in verse 32. And we read, And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And so the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do you harm be like that young man, dead as a mackerel. And then, verse 33, the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he wept, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, it says here that he was deeply moved. And the idea of this phrase, deeply moved, in the Hebrew, it means a violent trembling of the body. And so literally what happened was that the news of his son's death shook him to the core. And we get this emotionally. I mean, I get it. I understand it. The death of a son. His son has died. And, and so the spears that were plunged into Absalom's heart, they might as well have been plunged into David's heart. He's, he's freaking out about that. And any parent who has lost a child understands the cry of his heart, my son, my son, my son. Five times, my son, my son, my son. And, 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 and so we understand that, the desperate grief, the heart that's torn in two. And what makes this ten times worse for David is because he knows that he shares the blame. He knows that his son's death, well, David's got blood on his hands. He knows that he supplied the soil that this tragedy grew out of. Because of his indulgent parenting, because of his bad example in his own sinful nature, because of his failure to discipline his kids, because of his sin with Bathsheba, because he murdered Uriah. And so now David's sins have been magnified in his sons, and now three of his sons, because of his sin, have died. Because of his sin. And it's all the fulfillment of what Nathan had told David. He said to him, listen, the sword's not ever going to depart from your house. He told him, adversity is going to be raised up against you from within your own house. David understood that he would have to pay fourfold for his sin. He lost his three sons. His daughter Tamar raped, effectively lost all of her hopes and her dreams, all tied back to David's sin, David's failure. Which, by the way, and, and, and this, is, this is a sub-point to what we're talking about, but I think it's an important point to make at this point, that David's sorrow shows us that it's not enough that we train our children to be godly, we have to train ourselves first. G. Campbell Morgan said this, he said, we cannot stand in the presence of David's suffering without learning the solemn lessons of parental responsibility it has to teach. Not merely in training our children, but in that earlier training of ourselves for their sakes. That's a powerful quote. And we need to be those that realize, man, the way I live, the way I discipline myself or fail to discipline myself, 
the way that, that, that I train, train myself in godliness is going to have a direct bearing on my kids. Well, now where David's at is even though his mourning is understandable, what we're going to see when we get to chapter 19 next week or the week after next, next week will be Easter. What we're going to see when we get to chapter 19 is that Joab's going to challenge David. And he's going to get all up in David's grill. And the reason, and, you know, and it seems insensitive. It seems heartless. It seems like, look, the guy's lost his son. You know, have some decency, Joab. Why you got to get all, you know, all up in David's face and yell at him? But listen, what he, here's what he yells at him about it. He yells at him that his, his whole focus in this, I mean, the only question that he asks of both the messengers is, what's the deal with my son? Is my son okay? And so Joab's like, dude, you have this extreme focus on your son and at the same time an absolute disregard for your people. You, 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 in effect, what he says to him is, look, all you care about is your son. You don't care that 20,000 people died today because of what your son did. You don't care about the great sacrifices that your troops made. You, that, that, there, that, that there's 20,000 families right now that are weeping and wailing and mourning because of what Absalom has done. You don't care about that. You don't care that we have the victory what God has done, you don't care about any of this. And, and it sounds harsh to a grieving father, but he's absolutely right. Because David's also a king. And just as Ahimaaz had a misdirected zeal, so does David. See, because for Ahimaaz, his jealous, he was jealous for the good news of the victory, but he didn't carry the message of the cost of the victory. For David, he's zealous to avoid the bad news. Please just tell me my son's okay. He's, he, he doesn't want to hear that his son has to die. But the awful truth, and this is the whole point of the message today, is that the good news is the bad news. The only end to rebellion, the only way to restore the kingdom, is to kill the treasonous son. The only way to restore God's kingdom in your life is that the treasonous son has to die. So everything in the story culminates here in David's wailing anguish over his dead boy. And five times he repeats the words, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. And he says, if only I had died in your place. Listen, what David as king would not do in that he had to carry out justice at great personal cost and David was unwilling to do that. And what David as king could not do in that he would die for his rebellious son Listen, God as king did do in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He worked justice where justice had to be done. Instead of wishing, oh my son, oh my daughter, if only I had died in your place, Jesus did die instead of you and me. He took upon himself the fullness of the curse of our sins. Now listen, today is Palm Sunday. 
1984 years ago today, April 6th, 32 AD, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he came in, he was on the, the donkey, and, and as he came in, the crowds welcomed him with cheering and with, with hailing, and they were waving palm branches, that's why we call it Palm Sunday. John records it this way in John chapter 12. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, The next day a great multitude had come to the feast, and when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now these words that they speak, they come from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was prophetically written a, a hundred year, hundreds of years before Jesus came in. Before this day that the crowds are saying this, it was written hundreds of years before. And it was speaking of this very day that Jesus would come. And so the, these words, Hosanna, blessed is, is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, contained in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 also includes this phrase, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We say that all, you know, frequently. Hey, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And that's great and all, and that's cool. But prophetically, Psalm 118 is talking about this day. Talking about April 6, 32 A.D. That's the day that the psalmist is talking about prophetically, the day that Jesus came in to Jerusalem, that the Messiah came to his people, and his people hailed him. They sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why was this occasion cause for such great rejoicing? Here's the correct answer. The correct answer is because the world needs a Savior to save us from our sins. That's the reason for rejoicing. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Every last one of us, by nature, by choice, have rebelled against God, His righteous standard. We are not perfect. We are all sinners. And the Bible says that a death is owed for our sin. But the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said this way to the Romans in Romans chapter 5. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man die, uh, will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen, that is the day that the psalmist celebrated, looking ahead to the coming Messiah. But that is not what the crowds were celebrating when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey on April 6, 32 AD. They were, they were worshiping, they were celebrating an entirely different thing. Like David, they weren't hip to the message that the rebellious son had to die. They weren't hip to that message. 
What were they doing? Hey, they're shouting Hosanna. They're waving palm branches. They're gawking at the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. And you put it all together. Hosanna. It means save now. We sing that song. Hosanna. 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 Right? You are the God who saves us. You're worthy of all our praises. Why? It means save now. That's what they're saying. They're singing save now. They're waving palm branches. Palm branches in that day was like waving an American flag. It's a symbol of nationalistic pride. Now remember, they're occupied by Rome. Rome has taken over them. So what the people in Jerusalem were singing was, hey, listen, the Messiah is here to set us free from our occupiers. And so he's going to come in and he's going to set up his rule and reign. And for crying out loud, he raised a guy from the dead. So he certainly can help us to, to whip Rome and to get this thing back. And so they, what happens is, to the adoring crowds on Palm Sunday, they saw Jesus as the key to their circumstances, but they did not see him as the key to their souls. They were not hip to the message that the rebellious son has to die. They completely missed the spiritual implication. And this is an implication that every single one of us has to get today. We have to understand who Jesus really is, what his message really was, and how great our need truly is, and how great the need of the people around us truly is, that we need a Savior to save us from our sins. And our need is so great that the Father gave his only begotten Son. David They're saying, hey, how's Absalom? Don't hurt Absalom. Completely ignoring the fact that the only way to salvation and deliverance is the death of the rebellious son and unwilling to pay that price. Listen, a lot of people see Jesus as a means to their ends. A lot of people see Jesus as a handy guy to have around. A lot of people treat Jesus like, oh, you know what? I could use a guy like you, Jesus, in my camp. You're a handy guy to have around, you know? I could use a little patience. I could use a little help with my business. You know, I could use a little help with, with the missus right now. God, I'm kind of in Dutch with the wife, you know, and I, I could really use Jesus, you know? And a lot of people relate that way to God. And it grieves my heart. I, I, I see people, I'll be very careful with this, but I... I but it grieves my heart when, when a church becomes so inward focused that it's all about, hey, what are you going to get out of the deal? How, how, how short's the service going to be? How, you know, how loud's the music going to be? How, you know, whatever it is, it grieves my heart. Because the, the whole get is that I'm going to hell without Jesus Christ. I need a savior. And, 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 and I need to, to understand that Jesus came to die, not because he's my homeboy. He came to die because, because I'm going to hell if he, if he doesn't. My church experience isn't about, you know, how good of a time I have or how much I enjoyed it. It's about me every week being reminded that I'm a sinner by nature and choice and I have a God in heaven who loves me, who gave his life for me, gave his son for me and did not withhold from me the death 
of the rebellious son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That means this, folks, we close on this point. Because God loves you, his attitude wasn't to say, is Jesus all right? His attitude was to say, I have rebellious sons, I have rebellious daughters, and the only way to restore the kingdom is the death of my son. And I'm going to take all of your rebellion. I'm going to take you, rebellious daughter. I'm going to take you, rebellious son. And I'm going to take all of your rebellion, all of your sin, and I'm going to put it on Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who's perfect, lived a sinless life, God incarnate. And I'm going to nail him to a cross and have him suffer the most torturous death possible. And so Palm Sunday today is a day where I would have you take a walk with, am I more like the crowds that, that wants to celebrate the good news? But I want to do so at the expense of, hey, I don't want the bad news. Look, the bad news is Jesus had to die. The bad news is, is that you have to die. And here's the good news, you die by just placing your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ.